uh, man, uh, to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Uh, as I said earlier today, we are kicking off uh, our yearly Advent series uh, looking uh, at the expectant praise uh, that, that we find, we we're going to find in the stories of Zachariah, Elizabeth, Mary. But, but even as we look at those stories uh, over the next four weeks, we're also, man, we're going to see, uh, man, uh, in our own stories, this call to expectant praise, uh, as we, uh, not just celebrate this Advent season, but man, that, that this would be a mark of our lives, that we would be a people who are a people of expectant praise, that we would live lives as an overflow, uh, man, that, that are uh, lives of expectant praise. Uh, really, before we uh, jump in really quickly, I want to thank uh, Melissa for, Neil for, uh, man, she, uh, she is an amazing artist. And she, uh, man, she just drew this. I, there's like, I couldn't even draw a straight line. Uh, so to see that, uh, man, and really what she did was she took the text that we're walking through for the next four weeks and, and she made the, our advent design. And so, Melissa, thank you for that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I also want to thank, uh, my mother-in-law Tammy and my wife Haley for coming up here this week and, uh, decorating. Uh, they do that every year and they are awesome at it. And so I want to, uh, just thank them for that. Uh, but with that, again, Advent, uh, for those of you who've never participated or maybe you have and you never really understood it, is a time each year leading up to our remembrance of Christ's birth. Because again, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus is greater than Santa. Okay? Like, let's just get that out there. Uh, he is greater than Santa. Uh, but what we try to do, and really our goal, is that we would be a people that would slow down, wait, and worship in light of the truth that not only did our great redeeming King come, but even now we wait and we hope as we look forward to the day that He'll come again. You see, what we know from God's story is that since the fall, God's people, they have been, they had been waiting for a rescuer who would come and defeat their enemies. But you see, the fact of the matter is, is that often they forgot who their real enemy was. And man, we often forget who our real enemy is. But you see, Jesus came as our rescuer. He defeated our deeper enemy, our greatest enemy, sin, death, and the grave. So that today and every day, even in our slowing down, which we're going to dig into that here in just a minute, because, man, we all know, like, uh, the holidays are, don't feel much like a time of slowing down, do they? Uh, uh, we talked, Haley and I talked this weekend just about the reality of our calendars over the next few weeks. And we were like, oh my gosh, like, there is so much on our calendar. And I, and I want us to know, like, man, some of that, like, it's probably really good stuff. Like, you're going to hear, we, we have more announcements during the month of, the end of November and the month of December than we ever do. Like, there are just constant announcements that we have to just kind of lay out to kind of close out the year. But also, there's just a lot going on and not all of it's bad. But even in the midst of that, are we taking time to slow down and have a, a, a slowness of heart, a rest in our spirit? Even as we wait, even when things look dark and hopeless, man, today can we find hope, joy, love and peace in the reality of knowing that while Jesus came and defeated the enemy, he is coming back to make all things new. And so for the next four weeks, I want us to sit with a posture of anticipation. I want to sit with a posture of expectant praise. 
with hearts of waiting as we prepare to celebrate the first advent while also celebrating the hope of the second. You see, but along with this, something we have to realize, man, as followers of Jesus, that we are to be a countercultural people, but we are to use this season to proclaim the gospel to those around us in the way that we slow down our lives, in the way that we allow our hearts to be stirred up, in the way that we wait. Again, I said this is countercultural. Like our culture is a what? It is a sped up culture. And it only seems to be going faster and faster and faster. I mean, we all know like the day, like before, I think it's actually getting a little bit better. I, I made the comment on Friday. I think Black Friday's kind of had its day and it's, it seems to be going away a little bit, but maybe in some ways not. Maybe I just don't wake up early enough to know um, what happens on the early mornings of Friday after Thanksgiving. But uh, regardless of that, the crazy's still out there, okay? Uh, because I went to Walmart, unfortunately, on Friday. And decided, hey, I'm going to go in. I need to get a couple of things. Uh, and so I showed up and it, it, there actually weren't that many people there. I was like, oh, this is great. And so I grabbed the few things that I needed. And then I walked outside and that's where the craziness hit. I, as soon as I walked outside, I heard yelling and screaming. And I look up and there is a guy standing on top of a car just raging at the world, yelling about something that's happened, telling him to go get so-and-so and and bring so-and-so here because they're about to have a problem. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like yesterday you were thankful and today you're here, right? And so I'm walking, you know, trying to take a picture on my phone uh, just to be like, what is this craziness? But that's, man, it is just the the culture is just like this sped up, this uh, anxiety-filled culture. I mean, the holidays don't do anything to help it. I mean, you probably already experienced this. Like you had Thanksgiving this week and there were moments, not, I'm saying, not saying the whole time, but there were moments where you were like, man, I'm just really ready for this to be over. <laughs> right? Like it, it just, I see you seem worn out that you can feel that angst building. But we are to be different. We are to have rest of soul. But you see, the other side of that is we are not just a culture of speed. We are a culture that consumes. We are a culture of stuff. I mean, if we're not careful, and you know, this can be a temptation, uh, you know, for me, and I know maybe for you as well, man, we allow the stuff to mask what things really, what, what this season really means. Or we can make it mask, man, the hurt and the pain and, and the, the brokenness that we find around us either in this season or outside of the season. We mask the reality of what's really going on. But we are to be a people of expectant praise, even in the midst of pain. You see, the good news, and I believe that we'll see that throughout this season, is that praise is eternal while pain is temporary. That's what Advent is about, is that, man, we praise in the now. We realize it's not fully yet, but one day it will be. Praise is eternal, but pain is temporary. And that leads us to see that this is a season where, man, uh, we all realize we are still waiting. And so our goal for the next four weeks is to be reminded of the child that was born and the king that is returning again. So that we might be drawn to expectant praise. But, But why expectant praise? 
Well, the reason why we, 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 man, just, we're gonna work through and, and look at this is because we worship with eagerness, because guess what? We who follow Jesus and are indwelt with the Spirit of God, we are expectant for the day where there will be no more sorrow, pain, doubt, sin, struggle, or death. And so today we praise, but guess what? Expectation is building. We are closer today than yesterday. And tomorrow, unless Jesus comes today, Maranatha, let him come back, right? Like, we will be closer tomorrow than we are today. And I think we miss that. I think we just, because we get in the humdrum of life, uh, man, we get in the, the, the busyness and the craziness of the season, and it becomes about all these things that aren't inherently bad, but we maybe make the center of what's going on around us. Man, but we should be a people day in and day out who are more and more excited, who have more and more hope in the midst of this and every season, because we are counting down the days until the greatest gift returns. We, like all of, like my children, are already counting down the days until Christmas morning, right? And man, we love to see that excitement, but also we want to point them over and over and over again that Jesus is better than Santa. This is what we're after in this season. And again, this is a, 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 it is not just to be for the next four weeks. This is to be a mark of our lives. And so let's jump in because we, we're going to be reading a lot of scripture over the next four weeks. Uh, but we're going to begin today by reading, uh, starting in Luke 1. And we'll start in verse 5. We'll read 5 through 10. Uh, I just want you to know, man, a lot of what we're going to walk through over the next four weeks is going to be story. Like Luke is a storyteller, right? He says that his whole thing is, I'm going to give an accurate account. And so Luke 1, 5 through 10 says this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. All right, so quickly, uh, before we dive into the passage, I want to give, because I believe it's significant for our time today, I want to give a little bit of backstory to this orderly account that Luke is writing, uh, because, uh, man, it, it is significant in terms of our call to be a people of expectant praise. So this moment that Luke is recounting, this moment in Luke chapter 1, comes on the heels of 400 years of silence from God. You see, when the prophet, if you go back in your Bible and you look at the end of the Old Testament, you find the book of Malachi. He was the last prophet that's, that spoke. And then the Old Testament, that's where we see the Old Testament ends. And then you have the New Testament, right? And it's not like you turn a page and it was like, okay, Malachi said this and then boom, Jesus is born. No, there's 400 years of silence. But Malachi, at the end of the book, he, he closes out his prophecy And he proclaims, he says, God is going to send a prophet like Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord who would turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. 
Now, two things here. The great and awesome day of the Lord is the day when the Savior of God's people, Jesus, would come and proclaim the kingdom is at hand. Secondly, the coming prophet is a sign of God's grace. For instead of striking the land with utter destruction, Malachi says, he would send his son to take our stripes and the utter destruction of our sin upon himself so that we might have victory in the healing of his wings. And so Malachi says this, and then 400 years of not simply silence. Like it would be one thing if God was just silent, but 400 years of silence and then they find themselves enslaved under the rule of others. And they are crying out for deliverance. They are crying out for rescue. They are crying out in expectant praise for God to do something. There was this promise of a Messiah that would come. And man, they long for it. And so year in, year out, day in, day out, they are crying out in prayer. And so I think that, man, just a setup question as we hear this is this. In the midst of the moments that seem like silence to you, are you waiting in expectant praise? Or do you find yourself hurried today? Do you find yourself performing? Uh, man, do you find yourself seeking to fix that which you have no power to fix? You see, we're going to see two postures uh, really in the first two weeks, but I think throughout the entirety of this, these four weeks uh, of two postures. One is a posture of faith and rest uh, that, that is literally a, a posture of expectant praise. And then the other one is one of performing doubt. Today, in the midst of the moments in your life that seem like silence, are you waiting in expectant praise? Or do you find yourself seeking to fix it yourself? And so it's with this understanding of expectation in mind that leads us into Luke 1, where in verse 5 we get introduced to the stories of two people, uh, but we don't just get introduced to their stories, we, we, we get a picture of their struggle. The first person we're introduced to is Zechariah. It says that Zechariah was a priest of the Lord. And I think initially for us, what we can think of is just a guy that works full time. He's, he's just always in the temple, right? Like maybe a bit odd, like, cause they, you're never around anyone, you know, but that's not what's taking place here. Actually, it's much bigger because actually Zechariah is just kind of an ordinary guy. That's, he's one of 8,000 priests that probably lived during this time in Palestine. And so of those 8,000 priests, what would happen is they broke them up into groups of around 300. And these groups, for, for two weeks a year, they would have to go and they would have to take care of everything at the temple. So they would work for two weeks and then the next group would come in. And they would do that year round. And so the, Zachariah, his, his group has been called to go and work at the temple and each day they would cast lots and about 30 of those priests would go in and they would do the work of the temple. Another thing about Zechariah is, man, Zechariah's name means the Lord has remembered. Which I think is really key for the story today. That God has remembered and so we get a picture of Zechariah, an introduction on him, and we'll hear more from him in just a little bit. But then we get this introduction of Elizabeth, his wife. Now, Elizabeth was also a priestly descent. She had the same name as Aaron's wife in the Old Testament. The name of Elizabeth 
It means God is my oath. Now, now what that uh, technically means is it's not saying that, that she's, uh, tr- she's the one that's going to fulfill all the oath. No, that God is her promise keeper. That he is the one who fulfills his promises, even when she can't perfectly. And so they're introduced and it says that they're described as being righteous before God. Not that they're sinless, but that they're faithful to the laws of God. And so we get that. But then what comes next is that following their introduction, we get the problem in the story. You see, while they were considered righteous in the eyes of God, they were unable to bear children. She was, it says that she was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now, now in any culture, even in today's culture, like if, if you've struggled with infertility or you know people, man, that is a, uh, man, a, uh, a horrible disappointment to bear and to walk in. But in Hebrew culture, it would have been an almost unbearable burden. You see, barrenness in Hebrew culture was considered a disgrace. It was, it was considered a punishment in the eyes of others. There was this stigma that if you were barren, that only the barren, uh, barrenness would happen to those who weren't righteous before God. And so we get this tension, right? There's, it says that they're, they're righteous in the eyes of God, and yet they're barren. They're righteous and yet barren and in need. And man, when we, as we hear this, man, there's this reality that all of us are in deep need. We seek to be made right, but apart from the grace of God, we find ourselves barren and in need of that which could bring life to our inability. And it's these introductions that set the stage for the story where we see that Zechariah is chosen by the casting of lots. And I'm not going to talk about the details of the casting of lots. You see it a lot throughout Scripture. Really, it's God's providence and His sovereignty that we see here that, 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 that brings Zechariah into the Holy of Holies to burn incense for the Lord. Two things really quickly regarding this. Incense was a symbol in the temple of the prayers of God's people. And this act of a priest was an immense honor that many priests never got to experience. And if you did get to experience, you only got to go in there once. So let's just paint the picture here. Zechariah, a righteous man in the sight of God, but barren and disgraced in the eyes of man, is given the grace to represent God's people in the Holy of Holies by burning incense as a symbol of the prayers of God's people. But what I love is that it says while he's doing that, the people of God are in the court and they're praying. They're praying for God to deliver them. You see, this picture should draw us to praise simply due to the fact that while the people waited in expectant praise for rescue outside of the temple and only one man was allowed in as representation, we now know that God has torn down the dividing wall and He now resides in every follower of Jesus by His Spirit in us because Jesus came to us as our representative once and for all. And He now sits at the right hand of the Father in all authority. But He doesn't just sit there. He intercedes on our behalf. Again, I'm getting just a bit ahead of myself. Because remember, where we find ourselves in this story, 
is that the expectant praise of God's people has only been met by 400 years of silence. And so what is about to happen in the story is going to be unimaginable. So I think a question, another question we have to ask ourselves is, do we pray with the same intensity and discipline in light of the truth that Christ has come? These people for 400 years of silence and even before that, right? Like, but they, they, for these 400 years, they've been praying for the Messiah to come, for them to be rescued. Man, in our lives, like Jesus has come. And yet, do we pray with the same intensity and discipline that, man, one, that, man, he would return and make all things new, but also that his glory would be made known? I think so many of our prayers are what? Man, they're just about me, myself, and I. But let's continue in the story by reading verses 11 through 17. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. All right, so Zechariah, in the midst of the greatest honor of his life, enters the temple to burn incense on behalf of God's people, and Gabriel shows up in the Holy of Holies. It says that Zechariah's response, which is fitting, but I don't know that he truly grasps it, it says he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Now, last night I, I talked to Haley and I asked, what, I, 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 I asked my wife how to best describe this. And really, she just shot down every analogy that I gave. She's like, don't say that. Don't don't say that. No, nope, let's not do that, Kyle. But let's just go with he was more scared than he'd ever been in his life. And he might have hoped that he brought a change of clothes. Is that OK? Yeah, it's way better than last night. You see, angels are not what we're made to think. They're not heart-playing diaper babies. In Scripture, they produce such fear that people are greatly troubled and even falter as if they want to die. Like This is a serious, serious moment. And Zechariah is troubled. Because guess what? He's not expecting this to take place. And yet the angel Gabriel tells him, he says, hey, don't fear. And then he says that your prayer has been heard. Here in this moment, we see that there is silence no more from God. The 400 years are over. God speaks to his people again. 
But, but what does it mean by his prayer has been heard? You see, some would say uh, that the details that come throughout the rest of the story is that that uh, suggests that his, it was his prayer for his child. But as we're going to see in Zechariah's response uh, to Gabriel, suggests that it's a different answer to prayer. And I believe that it's actually a bigger answer to prayer. I would argue that Gabriel's proclamation is a promise that the prayers of Zechariah and God's people were coming true and that God would redeem His people once again, but it won't come in the way expected. And yet even in this, God will use Zechariah and Elizabeth's barrenness and need to accomplish and fulfill His promise of redemption. For Gabriel tells Zechariah that Elizabeth will bear a son and his name will be what? His name will be John. John literally means God has been gracious. So not only does God remember His people, not only is God the fulfiller of His promises, but God has been gracious. Now just note the implications of what's going on here. God is going to be gracious to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but He will use this son to bear witness to the grace of God that is to come. The result of which we see will be joy and gladness for them and, and they will, and the rejoicing by many at his birth due to the fact that he will be great before the Lord. God will use that which is barren to bring life to that, that will display the grace and glory of God. And today, what, like in your life, what are the barren things in your life that you long to see God bring life to so that it might display the grace and glory of God? Does your prayer life and obedience to God's Word display this type of expectation or are you expecting things to come by another means? God's people prayed for 400 years for a word and then the word put on flesh would be the answer of good news that we all needed. And yet, do we pray in the same way? So again, what are the barren things in your life that you long to see God bring to life and how often are you praying for them? How often are you praying for your family? The barren parts of your marriage. How long are you praying for your children and the parenting issues you're having and, and, and just, man, kids being kids and trying to figure that out? But how often are we trying to pray about it instead of just fixing it? Our own strength. How often are you praying for the lost around you? How often are you praying for the church? And how often are you praying for the brokenness of your own sin? So that God may be glorified and His grace may be shown. And I'm not saying all the time, but I think, man, the sad reality is that we're not. We talked about it a few weeks back. We're really good at complaining. We're really good at criticizing. We're really good at things like anger and apathy. But I don't know that we're really digging down and praying for the barren things to have life. Gabriel goes on to describe the life of John. He says he'll be a Nazarite who will be set apart in devotion to God. They're not to cut his hair. He won't consume strong drink because the fullness, his fullness would not be found in what ordinarily fills people, but by the filling of the very Spirit of God, even as we're going to see in the series from his mother's womb. 
And the purpose of the setting apart would be that, man, God has given him a job to do. He will fulfill the final words of Malachi before the silence began by turning the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers, the disobedience to the wisdom of the just and to make ready the way of the Lord. You see, John's ministry would have such an effect on people that it would change the way they lived. Fathers would awaken to their responsibilities as leaders of their home spiritually. And the same holds true for today. Nothing has changed, but are we awakened? Are we awakened, church? R. Kent Hughes once said regarding this text that this same call marks the preaching of the gospel today as well. Regenerated hearts produced reprioritized lives and families are redeemed. People are made ready for the Lord. And so in every season, but specifically this season, what are your priorities when it comes to Advent? What are you longing for? Is it simply just about a tree, lights, and presents, or is it more? Are you awake and expectant in your praise? Are you just going through the motions, busying yourself with stuff and events? Are you slumbering today while your home and life is burning down? Are you awake to what God is calling you to, which is repentance, faith, and expectant praise that only He can bring life to our barren lives? Again, Advent is meant to be a time where we slow down enough to turn our eyes and awaken our hearts to what really matters. And yet if we're not careful, our response will be over and over again like that of Zechariah in this story. So let's look at his response in verses 18 through 25. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Hear this. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Okay, so Zechariah has experienced not simply the greatest honor of his life, but the very moment God began speaking to his people again. And yet, in the midst of being told such praiseworthy news, his response is to doubt the good news by way of unbelief. You see, this is not a moment of this is too good to be true. Rather, this is unbelief due to the circumstances that have surrounded his life. You see, Zechariah, while righteous in God's eyes, cannot believe that God would do something like this. Maybe it's because he's been disappointed too much. Maybe it's because of the pain. But maybe I think more than that, it's like, does he really believe God is who he says he is? That he is. 
will fulfill his promise, that he will remember. You see, while we would shake our heads at this and say, come on, Zechariah, we struggle with the same reality in our lives because we all carry areas of unbelief when it comes to the broken and barren things in our lives. And because we hold them and seek to control them and change them in our own strength, but can't, we tend to believe that God can do nothing to change them either. Because we, if we can't fix them, nobody can, not even God. Man, how idolatrous is that? The belief that if we can't fix something, then there's not, there's no possible way that God could. Essentially, what Zechariah responds with in this moment is unbelief in the good news. Because guess what? If God could not give him a child in his old age, then could Jesus, man, it, would he even be able to rise from the dead? Would the Messiah really be able to rescue Again, our lives are the same. We proclaim faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet our lives are full of unbelief and things that are far simpler than bringing something dead to life. We believe the resurrection, but don't believe Jesus can resurrect the broken parts of our marriage, so we salt doubt and move on. We believe the resurrection, but don't believe that Jesus can handle and change our continual patterns of sin, so we give up and give into it, hoping that no one finds out. We believe that Jesus rose from the grave in victory, but do not believe that He is able to heal our wounds, whether they be self-inflicted or by others. And so we shut ourselves off from community and live lives of isolation. And guess what? The consequences are severe, both for Zechariah and for our own lives. Gabriel's response to Zechariah's unbelief in the good news spoken to him is that he would be silent, unable to speak until the fulfillment would come. And, and, and so one thing, there's a consequence, but guess what? That consequence is limited until the birth of his son. Zechariah leaves the temple and the people know something's happened because he can't speak. And yet in the midst of this, God's purposes are not thwarted. Elizabeth conceives and her reproach is taken away. And in life, our unbelief has consequences. For the follower of Jesus, there's not an ultimate consequence because Jesus has taken that, but it does have consequences. I believe that unbelief silences us today. It keeps us from expectant praise. We forget that we are to cry out, and yet there is much grace The call is to turn our hearts. The call is to prayer. The call is to listen. The call is to cry out for more and greater faith. So today, what is barren in your life that you need God to bring life to? And I want to encourage you to begin by praying for God's glory to be made known and for God to move in such a mighty way, man, in this city, in this community, through this church, through our neighborhoods, that we would seek the kingdom of God. And then next, what does expectant praise look like for you in this season? And how do you need to be reminded of Christ and His return? What do you need to put down? What do you need to turn from? How do you need to slow down? Uh, man, how do you need to unclutter your calendar or make intentional time? 
I need you to make sure that, that, that in this season of Advent, you're, you're taking time to talk to, to, to God in prayer, but also others in light of, man, what He's done for you and, man, just a heart of gratitude and gratefulness. What does it look like for you to pray for the things that are barren in your life and the lives of those around you? What does it look like to bring others into those barren places? Now, what I love about this story is that, man, the, the, the ultimate issue is that, man, God's people needed rescue. And in the midst of all those, there's a lot of little things. But, man, God's people, Zechariah goes in and yet God's people are praying for rescue and redemption. Are we praying for the same? Are we praying for that for one another? Are we just going through the motions? And we're really good at giving gifts, extravagant gifts, right? Thoughtful gifts. But man, what if we gave one another the gift of prayer? What if we became a people of expectant praise? And in each and every season, in each and every day of our lives, we praise because we're one day closer. And that's something to celebrate. have the team come back up. I mean, I want to invite you just to reflect on that, just to reflect on your own heart and life and to use this time, man, today as we kick off the Advent season to say, hey, man, uh, man, just to settle your own heart. To allow God to begin to reveal himself uh, away and aside from all the distractions. And then from that, just learning, man, what does expectant praise look like in intentional and practical ways? Where are the areas of unbelief in your life? Where, man, are you feeling really silent and, and you need to just cry out to God? Where, uh, man, are you, uh, do you, do you see barren things you want to see God bring life to? May we be a people of expectant praise because we, as we've read about today, as we've uh, sung about today, because we have such hope in Jesus. He is our hope. He's enough. So I want to invite you to reflect on that. I want to invite you to come. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come and partake in communion. Amen. In taking in communion, you're being reminded of the hope that's only found in Him. That He is the only hope for life because He gave His life. I cry out for God to to revive us and to remind us that all of our hope is found in you. Jesus, we thank you that you are our hope. We thank you that, God, this season um, is to be a mark of our entire lives. But, God, let it be an intentional season of of, of deep rest, of, of praise, of expectation and anticipation, uh, of, of worship. And knowing that you have been gracious to us. That you fulfill your promise. That you remembered us. God, that you're coming back. May our lives mirror that as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.